Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Hi, I'm Michelle Lombardi. I'm one of the directors of primary care at Wessex LMCs and I've got Andy with me. Andy, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Andy Perrick. I'm a GP in Poole and I'm one of the medical directors here at the LMC. Thanks, Andy. So Andy and I are going to talk through the contract changes that have come into place uh, for or will come into place in April. Um, so next month. And we're just reflecting on the letter that NHS England released on the 1st of March and has um, taken up quite rightly most of our workload over the last few weeks. And really just to go through the contract changes and give you an LMC perspective on that. And um, yeah, and let's go. So Andy, the uh, GPC England have been undertaking uh, the negotiations as they do each year. And I just wondered if you might want to reflect on um, how and what happened with the negotiations this year. Yeah, well, it certainly feels like we've been served another curveball by NHS England. Um, we're in year four of a previously agreed five-year deal for general practice. Uh, and the BMA GPC have been meeting regularly with NHS England since January to negotiate changes to the contract. Uh, the real focus there had been trying to achieve amendments to the five-year deal, uh, particularly around employer national insurance contributions in view of the 1.25% health and social care levy. Um, Quaff and IOS arrangements, especially around childhood immunisations, because it's becoming increasingly clear that uh, the new rules are disadvantaging many practices, especially those in the more deprived areas and the smaller practices. Uh, and also really highlighting with government that the five-year deal was agreed before we were hit with a global pandemic and that there is also the increasing pressure on practices from rising inflation, um, mindful that a lot of the budgetary agreements are, uh, in the practice were based on 2019 um, inflation. Uh, and negotiations also were looking to um, call for more flexibility for primary care networks to hire the professionals that they need locally. So based on the needs of their patients and, and not to be bound by sort of rigid prescriptive uh, job roles. Uh, they're also trying to negotiate a support package in excess of the current arrangements to support practices to deliver recovery in 22, 23, 23, 24, just as the acute sector uh, has been um, uh, has been supported, uh, and also uh, in line with um, uh, policy that was voted through at the last GPC meeting, there was uh, there was uh, attempts to agree to develop a new contract which supports in the independent contractor model. So that was a focus in negotiations. Sadly, they reached a stalemate in in around about mid February when it became clear NHS England wouldn't be offering an update that would give us any meaningful impact on patient care. And so we had the letter that was um, produced by NHS England on the 4th of March uh, and the contract changes come into effect from the 1st of April. And these haven't been agreed or endorsed by the BMA. So it really feels like another kick in the teeth for a workforce that has really risen to all of the challenges that COVID's presented over the last couple of years. But as we all know, we're, we're currently on our knees exhausted and, and in need of some support. Absolutely. I think just thinking along those lines, I think uh, within the letter from NHS England, it did say that further guidance would be coming out. We're about a week away and we're still awaiting that guidance. Uh, and just thinking about on that point, the BMA have released some information around the finance. So I thought it would be useful just to talk through that detail. We still await the confirmation from NHS England on this, um, but the BMA have released uh, information that relates to the global sum. So for this year, the global sum will increase by 3%, which will give a cost per weighted patient of £99.70. Then you've got the out of hours adjustment, which remains at 4.75% 
and has an increasing value to £4.73. The cough point value does increase um, by 3.2%, which now takes it to £207.57, sorry, 56 pence. So I'll just confirm that £207.56. There's, as I said, there's no changes to quaff. However, um, due to the way uh, the payment is and the average number of patients per practice, the value of the quaff point has increased. The most disappointing, I think, out of all of these is the um, pay uplift for staff. And as Andy said, I think you were the GPC England were looking to, to look at this and, and get it reviewed. Um, however, for this year, it's 2.1%. Uh, Andy, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Uh, this is really disappointing, you know, it's, and it's clearly going to cause issues with retention of staff because of the cost of living being approximately 5% at the moment and increasing along with obviously the impact of the health and social care levy of 1.25%. So practices are really going to be looking at um, uh, if they if they meet staffing um, pay requirements, they're going to be looking at uh, a reduction in, in core income probably for the partners uh, uh, and almost impossible, impossible to, to um, uplift staff in line with the cost of living at the moment. And we're already hearing practices saying that, that staff are, are leaving to work in, in other areas uh, they can earn similar or more money for for less hassle. Uh, uh, and actually, we really need to value these staff uh, and pay them um, for the hard work that they're doing. Definitely. And I think some really difficult decisions that practice is going to have to make over the next few weeks. I think the other thing just to mention is that the pay uplift identifies the percentage overall that practices have um, available to them, but actually need to consider the on-cost calculation within this too. So another pressure within that. And obviously in terms of salaried doctors working in, in practices, the DDRB uh, usually puts its recommendation for a pay award around about May. And we know that the um, DHSC has um, suggested an uplift of 2% for salaried doctors and so obviously we await DDRB recommendations based on this. So that comes out usually in May doesn't it so we'll watch this space and then finally um, on the finance uh, the investment and impact funds this will continue at £200 per patient. So just moving on from finance just to go through some of the general changes that are um, taking place over the for, from April. So the first one is around online booking and last uh, so the current year that we're in um, practices were required to make available at least 25% of appointments for online booking and this is actually going to be changed it says it's more targeted a more targeted requirement that all appointments which do not require triage are able to be booked online as well as in person or via the telephone. I think the question that we're getting asked, so what, what is triage and who determines it? I don't think it's clear from the information that's been released in NHS England's letter what this means. However, um, we would suggest that you look at what's in your GMS and PMS contract that determines how you best manage your own appointment system. We do have some questions around this, around how you manage nursing appointments, for example, that they're obviously, they, they're different times depending on what appointments they relate to. And actually, because of that, we would suggest that, that may, they may need triaging, so wouldn't be included within this. And also patients who um, require specific clinicians, how will we manage that? How will practices manage that? So there are a number of questions in relation to this. I think it's, one... sli it's slightly ironic that uh, NHS England's policy of right, right place, right person, right time uh, could be completely undone by this policy. Practices have worked really hard 
to to make sure that patients are signposted to the most appropriate team member mindful that we are now much more of a multidisciplinary team with the ARS roles but also encouraging patients to to self-care and signposting to the uh, voluntary sector as well so um you know it's it's a real risk uh, but hopefully um if we uh, want to get the contract specification um we can interpret it in a in a pragmatic way to make it work for practices absolutely and then moving on to the patient records. So uh, practices are going to be required um, to respond to access to health records. Um, currently, PCSE do this. And I think practices also have to print out all of the deceased patient records um, and send them back to PCSE. So they've removed that requirement. What is slightly disappointing is that they're asking um, GPs to be the gatekeeper for deceased patient records instead of working out a, a system for PCSE to take on this um, responsibility. What also isn't clear is who, uh, from the information in NHS England's letter, where or who are going to be storing the Lloyd George records um, and what happens when a practice closes or they change clinical system because all the deceased patient records are believed and not then stored anywhere. So there's a number of questions again around this policy uh, with concern from practices around how they're gonna actually implement it. I don't know, Andy, if there's anything you wanted to add to that one. No, no, brilliant. Um, vaccinims, so um, some minor changes to the vaccinims relating to HPV, MMR, and the MEN ACWY programme. Again, we're really disappointed with this, um, that there's been no acknowledgement of the issues that practices have faced this year around claiming and achieving the various targets that are attached to this. I feel that this is definitely a missed opportunity um, with this. And then following on with one piece of good news around SARS. So the funding that was associated in the global sum of 20 million um, was due to end um, this month. However, they've continued to include this within the global sum from April. And therefore, um, practices will continue to receive funding uh, for the work associated with this as there continues to be quite a significant workload uh, around this. And then finally, um, around the general changes, the GP registration. So they're looking to modernise how GPs, um, how patients register. Interestingly, I think most practices have um, undertaken uh, a review of this and do it in various different ways. So I think they've already um, removed the need for a wet signature or hard copies, et cetera, of um, GMS uh, one forms. Uh, but it'll be interesting. We wait with interest around the details of that. So moving on to the quality and outcomes framework, so QOF and, and the enhanced services. So I think positive again, there's no new um, additional indicators will be added to QOF. Um, however, there, we are again disappointed with regards to no income protection um, to, to recognise the backlog and workforce issues that practices are facing. Andy, I don't know if there was anything you wanted to pick up there. Um, just also say the quaff point has increased, which is positive, but no income protection, which is really disappointing. I think it's a real missed opportunity. They could have looked at rationalising quaff, making it uh, much more stripped back, uh, achievable, focus more on outcomes rather than tick boxing. Uh, and an opportunity to acknowledge that we've got a lot of work uh, in terms of addressing both the primary care backlog, but also the knock-on consequences of the huge secondary care backlog and that transfer of work into primary care. Absolutely. And then quality improvement modules. So there are two um, that are going to be focusing on optimising patient access and uh, prescription drug dependency. The BMA did release some quite useful information around the 
detail of these two indicators, which would be worth working through. Um, probably should have said at the beginning, we have done a couple of documents. The first being uh, the an overview and a summary of the um, uh, of the changes in a, a PowerPoint slides. And the second one we released, I think, back end of last week, which was our response to this, um, to the contract, contract changes and a document that provides our response and also the BMA's information. So it'd be worth having a look at, which will be available on our website. And then finally, within this area, the weight management enhanced service is continuing for next year. Um, however, we still await details. It, it looks potentially like that the long COVID enhanced service isn't going to continue from April, but we're trying to seek information around that. Okay, so moving on to the network DES. So we're going to chunk this up. So we're going to talk a bit about the network DES, and then we're going to come on to the extended hours and the, in the extended access, because I know that's causing a huge amount of concern um, with our practices. So just looking at the network DES, so there's a number of um, bits of information within the letter around the ARRS roles. Um, and that they're keen for obviously PCNs. I think they've said this all along to recruit additional staff. I think um, Andy may have some comments on, on that shortly, but I just quite like to recognise that there's been no information around the estates to house these, these members of staff, which is a huge, huge issue. And every PCM we talk to, it is a major issue. So it's a, incredibly disappointing that they're promoting ARRS, but they've, got, they've not made any comment around the accommodation and the premises to house these staff. Andy, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about um, the ARRS feels like it remains too limited. Yeah, just to add on, in terms of estate, we've also got to think about IT as well, because uh, in a lot yeah. of areas, there, there aren't uh, uh, laptops available for these staff to be working even remotely. So, um, And in terms of flexibility, well, the workforce just isn't out there in a lot of areas, and, and this aspiration that we can employ more mental health uh, practitioners, well, most areas haven't been able to recruit the first cohort of mental health practitioners. So uh, we'd call for absolute flexibility in who can be employed under ARS, and this should include nurses and uh, and doctors. Um, we need to find the staff that are available out there and fit them to jobs that they want to do that best meet the needs of the, the PCNs and the patients that they serve. Absolutely. And I think the other um, real issue is around supervision, who supervises these staff. Uh, yeah, and supports them. And there's been doesn't feel like there's been any acknowledgement in any of the documentation we can see around this. Yeah, I'd agree on that. Um, so moving on from ARRS, there's the clinical directors. So the clinical director funding will continue, uh, has been agreed at 0.736 pence per patient. And there is a boost of funding of 43 million. However, we're not got any detail around what this means. I think when you look at this, the additional funding boost, it equates to about £1.50 per patient and is roughly two days per week of CD time. I think the concerning thing is, is where in all of this and whether the 43 million are the support around the management, the leadership that PCN managers and practice lead practice managers are undertake. And again, there's no detail around the 43 million boost, which is really, you know, hopefully we'll get some detail around that and what that actually means. PCN core funding um, is going to continue at £1.50 per head. Again, this doesn't really identify any real growth, uh, so it feels like it's almost a cut in funding. And there are a few other areas within the um, uh, network desert are updating. So um, personalised care and support planning for uh, care home residents. Um, 
they're looking to rephrase uh, rephasing of plans in two ways. First, PCNs will have an additional year to implement. So they've given a digitally enabled personalised care and support planning. And then 22-23 will become a preparatory year with the implementation from the 31st of March 2024. I think it's really unclear what's expected of uh, PCNs around this. So we um, be interesting to find the detail out about this. The other element is around the um, anticipatory care plans. Again, this has been um, pushed back to December this year and um, anticipatory service will be led by the ICS, which is um, not due to start until 23-24. I think this kind of highlights how important it is that there's a primary care voice um, at an ICS level, I think it highlights it. Um, yeah, makes it makes it incredibly important. And then finally, the Inve investment and impact fund. Um, so the IIF, there are three new indicators within this. I think we do have some concerns with particularly the CVD twelve and the CVD fifteen. Uh, the first CVD twelve, the threshold of ninety five percent, does make this indicator quite unachievable. It feels. And then the CVD-15, this potentially indicates that practice and PCNs may have to undertake switching exercises, huge amount of work there um, and workload. So as I say, concerned about the impact for practices and PCNs on that. I think just touching on that, this sets a worrying precedent, doesn't it, that the government appear to have done a deal with a drug company. Um, we could be asked to uh, switch patients to a, a new drug based entirely on cost. Um, uh, and we've done that before with uh, branded generics and then being asked to switch people back to generics. So um, are we going to be going around in circles switching patients and is it genuinely cost effective in the longer term? It's the anxiety that causes patients too, I think, that you're going to have to manage in the, in the support that they might need and understanding why they've got a different drug. Okay, so moving on to the extended hours and extended access. So I think this has caused the most discussion um, that we uh, and concern from practices around what the expectation is going to be from the 1st of October. So let's just pick, let's just go through some of the details. So currently, um, PCNs receive £1.44 for the extended hours element of this. And that there is a service that the extended, so the extended access service commissioned by CCGs at £6 per head. And we believe that that funding will then obviously transfer through to uh, PCNs from the 1st of October. And we've had clarification from the BMA that the, the total cost will be £7.46 that will transfer. And actually simple math says that that doesn't add up as a 2p difference. And it's something to do with how it's uh, weighted and distributed as to how the 2p um, is additional. So it'd be £7.46. The other element that we did hear on a, an NHS England uh, webinar was that there was money being taken from the global sum, an amount being taken from the global sum to put into this, and we're still trying to get to the bottom of what that means. So the service, in essence, will be um, uh, PCNs having to provide uh, a service between 6.30 and 8, sorry, 6.30 to 8 p.m. Monday to Friday and 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturdays. And I think I probably emphasise the word between. Uh, so not necessarily having to provide every hour in that timing. However, with that said, we're not quite sure what the service specification will say. We'll wait the final detail and the devil's in the detail. I think the one thing that we are mainly concerned with is what they're calling these. So the network standard hours. Andy, I don't know if you want to uh, make any comment on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's slightly alarming, really. Uh, obviously, the... the um 
primary care network des is an extension of the core gms contract so to suggest that we now have network standard hours uh when actually these aren't standard hours these are additional hours uh, could be seen as a worrying trend so i think it's really important that we try and when we communicate that we're very clear on the differences and how they keep them separate but i get you know it's really it's really difficult so I think also it doesn't actually say anything in the letter about how long, a, how, the length of appointments. All it does refer to is that there's 60 minutes um, per thousand population. There's that calculation, but it doesn't say how long the, the appointments need to be. I think that offers some flexibility uh, around what PCNs may want to or may be able to do with this. We obviously wait the devils in the detail, but Andy, is there any comment you want to make on that? Yeah, absolutely. The detail that comes out in the service specification is going to determine whether or not this is achievable uh, for for PCNs uh, and whether or not actually it will be beneficial for, for patients. Uh, if there isn't a prescriptive, rigid uh, detail around appointment length uh, and number of appointments, then it's potentially an opportunity to um, cap at working at a safe level and perhaps offer working opportunities that are more attractive to um, clinicians that are feeling understandably that the current working arrangements are not achievable. So there is that potential opportunity to set a precedent in terms of safe working in these hours that we could then use perhaps to um, to look at uh, introducing the same in core hours of, of the GMS hours. Um, I think it's really important also to, to look at these uh, extended access appointments and realise that they will generate additional work in terms of admin as well. So the time that are used for these appointments can't purely be appointment time. There has to be an acknowledgement that the administrative work that's generated by these consultations needs to be done within this time. It can't simply be transferred back into core hours time for us to pick up this additional work. No, and it also talks about, I think, in the letter about ensuring that there's P, uh, GP cover during the network standard hours. And what does that actually mean? I think if it's going to be really prescriptive that they've got to be on site for the whole of the session, and that's going to reduce the ability around uh, the flexibility and how they use and how PCNs use the funding. Do you think that, you know, do you agree with that, Andy? Yeah, I'd agree. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the other thing just to highlight also um, is that there is a plan that needs to be submitted um, by PCNs to the uh, to their commissioners by the 31st of July, with a final a final iteration by the 31st of August. This is a huge amount of work that PCNs are going to need to undertake, especially at a time when the actual system is changing. So, going from CCGs to ICSs, it's. I must admit, I sit here and think, wow huge undertaking and what support is going to be out there for PCNs to undertake this and I think as an LMC we're really keen obviously to support PCNs to work with the CCGs and commissioners to help find a pragmatic way forward with this and to ensure that the, there is a service available for patients but that actually practices and PCNs can you know realistically deliver. Yeah I think I'd agree with you I mean you know, we are where we are. We've got a contract that we've got to make the best of. Uh, and as usual, the LMC are going to work with commissioners to try and ensure that they take a pragmatic approach to implementing the contractual changes. Uh, the BMA General Practitioners Committee are meeting this week to discuss next steps in relation to the uh, the contract. Uh, and we wait the outcome of that meeting uh, with bated breath. Thank you, Andy. Hopefully people have found this um, 
podcast useful. So um, any questions on this or any queries that you would like to raise, please do contact the office at office at wessexlmcs.org.uk. And uh, thank you. And thank you for listening. Cheerio. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.